Well, very good. I thank you all for showing up here on a on an afternoon. I'm sure uh, you're uh, starting to feel those afternoon heavy eyelids and stuff. We're going to try to deal with that a little bit. Try to keep this active and keep it flowing, and uh, hope we can hope we can make that happen. I. Uh, Drove from Cincinnati, but it gave me a lot of opportunities to do some other things. My wife and I are in a transition right now. We're getting ready to move to Russellville, Arkansas, where I'm going to be the senior minister there uh, and taking on a, a new challenge. And I also have a son that lives in Nashville. And so I was able to drive through Nashville last night and see my son and, and new daughter-in-law. Just got married last, uh, last month, actually, and uh, had a chance to spend some time with them. And they made me dinner, which I thought was, that was, that was kind of cool. You know, you, you all these years you make your kids dinner and make sure everything's taken care of and then you come and they make dinner for you. It was nice. It was, it was good and she did a good job with it too. How many of you are in-laws? How many of you have those who call you mom-in-law mom or aunt-in-law? Yeah, I'm not doing so well on that so far. This is my first you know, go around at this so y'all may have to help me a little bit. I, uh, when I went to help them move, uh, you know, well, first of all, we've always taught our kids to try to, to, to date and, and eventually marry people that have similar values, right? And our family's always obviously valued spiritual things, wanted them to, to find and date and marry people who had similar spiritual values, and he did a great job with that. Uh, this young lady, her dad's a professor at Harding and uh, raised in a very deeply spiritual missionary family. Uh, great choice for a wife, and I know she's going to make a great wife, and should God bless them with children, a great mother, and uh, we're, we couldn't be more excited. Uh, but, you know, sometimes in my excitement, I, I may not always do things right. The, when I helped them move into their apartment in Nashville, uh, my son was a, when he was a little guy, was a great collector of these plastic animals, you know, the realistic looking ones. Uh, and so when we were going through stuff, I, I told you we're getting ready to move, so we're going through a lot of the stuff and, you know, cleaning out this we need, this we don't need. Found one of his rubber snakes, one of his old and very realistic looking rubber snake. It's a great one. It really is wonderful. Uh, and I took that down thinking, you know, I'll, I'll give this to him. Just it'd be funny. He's, you know, he's in his 20s now and, and probably not as interested in, in rubber snakes. Um, but I thought the way to present it might be to right at the door, the entryway to their apartment is just to kind of leave it there and see uh, and see what happens. And, uh, and so that's what I did. I, I snuck it in and I just kind of left it right there at the door. And uh, when, my, when my son came out and saw it, he goes, you are very lucky that I'm the first one to see that. And I said, well, why? And he goes, because my wife has a serious phobia of snakes. And had she seen that, it would not have just scared her. It would have, she would have gone ballistic. It would have gone over the top. I said, well, maybe that wasn't a great idea. So, uh, so we picked up the snake and then I, I pulled out the little plastic alligator and I set it there. And, and I don't know, she saw that. It didn't seem to be as bad. She didn't seem to, to have too much trouble with it. Uh, but I called it their guard gator. And uh, it wasn't there the last time I went back. So I'm guessing it's now the trash gator. Um, yeah, it, it, it went away. I thought it was funny. You know, some, again, sometimes people value things a little differently. And, uh, and that's, that's definitely true. Sam's beginning to understand that, my son also, that it's how important it is that they value some of the same things. In our lesson today, and you might, you're, you're going to wonder maybe at times how this relates to some of the things that we're talking about today. But in our lesson, we're going to talk about how important it is that we as servants of God and, and those who minister before Him value the same things He values. How important it is that we get our values right and not just value the things that we like, but value the things that He likes. And value them in a way that honors and glorifies Him. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 for a little while today because we find there 
that one of the things that God is very clear about is that He values lost things. And those are very, very, very important to Him. Have you ever lost something that was of great value to you? Think about that for a minute. I've got several examples, unfortunately, of things that I've lost that have been of great value. The, maybe one of the things that comes to mind first off is, is a, an income tax check that we had gotten in the mail that probably got shuffled into one of those infamous paper piles and thrown in the trash can. Uh, and it was, you know, over $1,000, and we looked all over the place for it. I went through two or three trash bags, and we never did find it. Thankfully, the government was more than ha was, was happy to replace that once they found it, that it was not, uh, not, uh, had not been cashed, uh, and we, we were able to get that back. But you know how it is when you lose something of great value like that. You get that feeling in your stomach. You know what I'm talking about, that kicked-in-the-gut kind of feeling. Oh, my goodness, where is this thing, and what am I going to do if I can't find it? And you just, that, you just start moving towards the edge of panic as you go through uh, and try to, try to find this thing. What are some things that you've lost? Have you had some things like that along those lines? What are some things that you've lost that have been of great value? A wallet. A wallet, yeah. And a wallet's not just the money, right? You got your ID, you got your credit cards, you've got a lot about yourself in there, and that is no fun when you lose those kind of things. What else? Wow. That they had just thrown in there. They had all the wrapping paper in it, and the Christmas money was still right. there. Right. Wow. Wow. So he, he was able, they were able to get it back, but he had to go do the dumpster dive to, to, to get it back. And uh, I had that experience, too, with going through the trash trying to find that check. Again, one of those times when you're just going crazy wondering where this thing's at, and, uh, and it was lost. What else? I had a friend, one, a youth minister, I guess, that, that I worked with at one time that had gone to Europe uh, on a, I guess he was with Harding, and he had uh, been over there touring Europe and lost his passport. Now, if you've ever been out of the country and lost your passport, you know that's a panic time. He lost it not once, but twice in the same trip. That's an issue. <laughs> yeah, that's a, he's lucky he got back. His, his dad helped him get it back the first time, and then the second time he helped him get it back and put him on a plane home. Said, you're not staying there any longer. You're coming home. And uh, that's got to be a record or something. I don't know. It's probably not, but it, it seems a little, uh, it's a little wild to me. Well, the, the one thing I've lost, though, that, and, and I've lost a number of things, but the one thing I've lost that always got me, my, my stomach in knots more than anything else, and maybe you've had this happen, too, when your kids were smaller, did you ever have those moments, and they may not have been long, maybe just a few seconds, when you didn't know where they were? Maybe it was in a, a store or in a mall, at an amusement park, even a church. I've seen panicked parents looking through a church building going, where did he go or where did she go? I had a daughter that was, that was accustomed to, to running off, and it wasn't unusual for her to... To, to, find her, to, to find her wandering around somewhere looking for us, thinking that we had left her. Uh, I remember one time being at an amusement park, and she was, uh, I don't know, I'm guessing three or four at that point in time. I had a younger daughter who was in a stroller, and my son is older, and he was, he was uh, walking around also with me. It had started to rain, and so I guided the stroller and my son and daughter uh, into this little store, 
And while we were in the store kind of waiting out the rain, my son said, Dad, there's something over here you got to see. And so I told my middle daughter, Anna, you stay right here with your little sister. And she was in the stroller. And I'm going to go look at what Sam wants me to look at, and I'll be right back. You stay here with this stroller. So I went over and, and to look at what my son wanted me to look at, and it had to have been, I mean, again, a matter of just a few moments. And I come back, look at the stroller, guess who's not there? Anna. She had walked off. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And, and this wasn't the only time with her. She did this numerous times. But that feeling, you know that feeling in your stomach that's just like, and your mind goes to the worst case scenario, doesn't it? I mean, it's like somebody's grabbed her and she's gone, you know, and, and that, that, that thought, you just can't fight it. it, it it's just pervasive it, it, and it keeps you going. And you get right up to that edge of sheer panic in a heartbeat, just in a moment. And so I'm looking all, all, all over the store for her, trying to find her when I finally, I, I hear this child wailing outside the store. And I thought, that sounds like a familiar cry. And so I make my way outside the door, and sure enough, she was standing there in the doorway of the store, wailing and saying, my daddy left me. <laughs> and I was humiliated to begin with, and uh, I see these women all gathered around her. Oh, honey, don't worry, we'll find your daddy. And they look up at me, and this is the t-shirt I decided to wear that day. I didn't wear that t-shirt again. <laughs> I thought, you know, that might be a better oil rag or something like that. And that's, that's what, it, uh, what it became. Uh, again, the idea, though, being that those kids are important to us. We value them. And when those kids are lost, when even if it's just for a few moments, and if you've had it happen, you know those moments feel like many moments, right? It feels like an eternity that they're gone. You know the desperation that you feel just trying to get them back. Well, in Luke chapter 15, Luke tells us a story of several stories that Jesus told to communicate the fact that God feels like this when His kids are lost. When He can't find His kids, when they're beyond His, beyond his, uh, his ability to control, when they're out of His fold, He feels like this. And he wants to communicate, wants to communicate it in a very clear way. I, I love the, the, this trilogy of stories that he tells uh, and love the context of, of these stories. In Luke chapter 15, verse 1, we see it says that Jesus is sitting with sinners and tax collectors. They've gathered around him and he's talking to them. They're the audience for this story. But Luke tells us that they weren't the only audience for the story, that there were others who were listening in, and they were the usual crowd, the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, right? Listening to what Jesus has to say. And Luke tells us right off the bat that they're already talking about him. Well, this guy, looky there, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's what he's about. And so they're already making, they're, they're casting accusations towards Jesus of, of mingling with sinners and of being one with them being self-righteous about what they do. And so the first two stories Jesus talks about when He talks about lost things are the story of the lost coin and then the story of the lost sheep. And the stories are similar. Both, in the, both feature individuals who have lost something that's very important or valuable to them. In the first story, a woman loses a coin. She sweeps through the house looking for the coin. Finally, when she, when she finds the coin, it says that, that she calls her friends and says, I found my coin that was lost. Come here and celebrate with me while we, and, and celebrate the fact that I've found what was lost before. And she throws this party and celebrates. And then Jesus says, you know, it's that way when a sinner comes to repentance in, in heaven. The angels and God celebrate. 
Then he says, and you know, there's a, there's a shepherd that had, had a, has a flock of sheep, and one of those sheep comes up missing. Now, it's not their, their shepherding and our shepherding a little different in those days. You know, the, in those days, they, they kind of did the free-range things, and the shepherds just kind of led them from place to place uh, on the barren hills for the sheep to feed and, and, and to survive, and then brought them back when it was time to, to, to shear them or to, to use them in some, in some way, shape, or form. And during that time, the shepherds got very close to these sheep. It, what, they, they weren't just a, a bunch of animals to them. Each of those sheep had a name, and they knew them. And the sheep knew the voice of the shepherd, and they knew each of the sheep. And so when one of them was missing, they were outside the, outside the flock, outside the pen. They were in danger, right? I mean, critters could get them, or somebody could take them. Something could happen, and they desperately don't want that to happen. So he tells a story about this shepherd who loses one of his sheep, and he goes, leaves the, the flock behind and goes off to find this one sheep that had turned up missing. And he does, and he finds him, he finds the sheep, he throws him on his shoulders, and he comes back, and again, he calls his friends around him and says, listen, celebrate with me, because this sheep that I lost, I've now found. Jesus, again, says it's the same in heaven. There's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner who repents over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. What do you think God's, what, as, as God speaks there in, in human form, and as Jesus, as He's speaking to these people who are sinners, these people who the Pharisees have clearly kicked to the curb and says, you don't matter, there's no way you can measure up, you can't possibly be good enough because of all that you've done. As Jesus tells these stories to them, do you think it's starting to settle in what He's really saying there? I, I don't know. You, you wonder, they've been told for so long how meaningless and unimportant they are in the big scheme of things. They've been told for so long how, how worthless they are, how they couldn't possibly have any hope, how God couldn't love them because of who they are and what they've done. I don't know if they've got it at this point. I don't know they're seeing that Jesus in these lessons are saying, you are valuable to your Heavenly Father. You matter. You are important. And Jesus is telling them this. And then in the third story, Jesus makes it, I think, obvious what he's saying. In fact, as you watch this, watch how he sets it up as kind of, a, of an invitation of sorts uh, that, that might come at the end of a sermon that we're accustomed to. But he, he sets up this invitation in, in the heart of this narrative as he's talking to these sinners and shows them the fact that God values them, that God finds them worthy that God wants them to repent, to return, and to be a part of His productive household. And Jesus tells the story like this. In chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11, if you have a Bible and would like to read along, feel free to do so. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Please give me a share of my estate. So he divided his property between them, and not long after that the younger son got together all that he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything there, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to have need or be in need. So he went to, and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him out to, to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came back to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. This next phrase, I think, is, is vitally important to this story. But while he was still a long way off, remember that. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. He called out to one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother's come home, he replied, and your father's killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father says, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. I don't know what it might have been like to have sat in the crowd. I would li- it'd be fun to go back and do it. And watch the meaning of this story settle on the people who were listening to him. As Jesus tells this story, maybe more, maybe easier because of the the sake of time and and the study that we've done for us to understand the metaphors that that are rife within this this story. But I got to think it. At some point, these, as these sinners are listening to this and understanding who Jesus was and what He was, that the meaning began to settle in. And that as they're listening, you wonder if they're thinking, oh, there's no way He's talking about me here, is He? Am I that son? Am I that, that one? And if so, what's He saying there? Is He saying that it's possible, just possible, for me to come back? You've heard the story over and over again, I'm sure. We tell it to the little ones all the way up and, and talk about how important, how important it is that we realize as the fact that we're all prodigal sons and daughters of some sort, that God's grace is there for us and that we have a Father who is there to support us and who is there when we come back from some of our, our struggles and some of our difficulties. He's, he's ready to welcome us in. And, and so let's look at the story and... and and think about it. I want to look at it from a little different angle this time as we look at the topic that we're looking on, which is, again, is reconnecting with family, those who have been incarcerated, those who have been in prison. We want to look at how we're going to reconnect them with family. And I hope you'll bear with me to expand that a little bit to talk about how to reconnect them with church family and that kind of thing, because I think that's just as important to where they're going and what they're doing. And I think this story has a lot to show us when it comes to how we're to be uh, those who can facilitate that and, and can make that happen. So we look at this and, and we've got three characters basically in this, a few more, but three main characters. We've got the, the father, we've got the older son and the younger son, right? The younger son 
asks for his inheritance. Uh, the father grants it. He goes off to a, a foreign land where wild living is, is acceptable, and he, and he spends all of his money and gets to a point to where he becomes broke and destitute. He has nothing, and there's a famine in the land, so work is difficult to come by. And so he's literally facing the, the, the prospects of starving to death because he has no way of making an income. And as he considers his options, he finally finds work with a, with a farmer who sends him out in the field to feed pigs. And again, in the, you've heard in the Jewish mindset, that's a pretty, that would be a pretty disgusting option. The pigs are unclean animals, and he's being asked to feed these unclean animals. And we know, if you've ever been on a pig farm, you know that that's not exactly, in a number of ways, not exactly a pleasant place to have to work. Uh, it, it's, a, it's difficult, not only is it a difficult job, but it, but it but it's kind of hangs with you at the end of the day, right? Uh, to, to put it lightly. Uh, and it, it's, a, it's a difficult work, and yet that's what the son was, not only was, not only was he doing this difficult work, but he was kind of, he was kind of digging what the pigs were eating, right? Sounds like he's, he's looking at that going, mm, that, that, that don't look too bad. Which kind of, again, gives us an idea of where he was when he's wanting to eat what they're eating because he's so hungry. Gives us a sense of just where this young man is and how desperate he is. As his labors wear on, he begins to come to a realization. He remembers his father's servants, the lowest in the household, and he remembers how they were well fed and were well taken care of. And he starts to formulate a plan. You know, I'm going to go back and just, just see. He knew he burned most of his bridges and what he had done. He knew that the things he had been involved in up to this point would never have met with his family's approval. He knew that they had looked at him as someone who was, who was basically uh, a, an outcast, someone who could never return. And he thought, maybe, just maybe, if I go back and I ask if I can just become a servant, hire me back as a servant in your household. I don't deserve to be a son. Maybe they'll take me back. And so he goes. He's walking back the road, and you get the sense that he's rehearsing this speech. And then Jesus, in verse 20, utters this, this phrase. But while he's a long way off. Now think about, again, who does this young son represent in the context of Jesus' story? And, and certainly, it, it, we could say it represents us in, in, in an extent that's true. But again, in, in the context of Jesus' story and the Jewish culture that he's telling it, in which he's telling it, it's, it's almost certainly talking about those who were Jews who had moved away from spiritual things. They'd become basically non-religious Jews. And we have those, those are in existence in our culture too. Non-religious Jews. They were Jews by birth, Jews by heritage. But as far as the, the spiritual aspects of it go, they really didn't have much to do with that. Uh, some because they didn't want to, and some may have wanted to, but the Pharisees had said, you're done. You get out of the temple. You're, not to be, you're, you're a sinner. You don't deserve to be here. And so Jesus is undoubtedly that the metaphor of that younger son are these Jews who have wandered away and have no way of getting back. The older brother in, in the story, and, and, and we'll get to him in just a minute, is, is this religious establishment, right? It's, it's the, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law, those who are teachers who are saying, listen, according to the law, you've broken the law in, in numerous places. There's just no way to get back. I'm sorry for your luck. God's not going to have you. He's not going to have any of this. That's the older brother. Then we have the father. Who does the father represent? Who, who, who is the father? God, yeah. And in this story, God despite the brother, despite what the son does, sees the son coming, and the Bible says, from a long way off. Isn't it true that some of the people that you work with, that we work with in, in, in a jail and prison ministry, 
some of them are still a long way off, right? Some of them are, have understanding. They know that, that there's a, they, they understand there might be a way back. They understand that what they've done some of it is wrong and, and they've probably been told by church people, by religious people that made to feel like they have no hope either. And some are just too willing to let that be, to just let them go ahead and think that. But in this story, in Jesus' story, while, the, while this young son is a long way off, the father, God, sees him coming and goes to meet him while he was still a long way off. The Bible says he, he bring, he, he comes, the son comes before him and the, the father, we get the sense that there's, a, that there's an embrace, there's a hug, and the son begins his story, his rehearsed speech. Father, I don't deserve to be a son. Uh, I, I want to come back and be a servant. The father cuts him off and says, no, bring him the robe. Put the shoes on his feet. Put a ring on his finger. This is my son. He was lost and now he's found. Kill the fatted calf. Let's, let's throw a party. Invite people in. Because the son of mine I thought was dead, but now he's alive. He's come back. And the father takes him, and they begin to party. The older brother hears the music and comes in and asks what's going on, and when he's told, he shakes his head. Well, there you go. And my younger brother's back. Isn't that great? The father comes in and says, What's up, man? Your, your brother's home. We're celebrating. And the older brother says, Yeah, well, I've been here all along. I've been, I've been working. I've never, done, I've never disobeyed anything you've said. And you've not even given me a little goat so I can celebrate with my friends. Woohoo! hoo glad, glad my younger brother's back. And off he goes. The father reminds him, you, you've always been with me. Everything I have is yours. But I can't help but celebrate when someone was lost and now he's returned. Again, Jesus saying, your younger brother has tremendous value. He has tremendous worth. He's very important in the big scheme of things. Again, a lot of times when you've heard this story in sermons or in lessons, you've talked about this idea of the prodigal son. You've talked about the idea of coming, of understanding God's grace, of knowing how wonderful it, would, it feels to have God's arms wrapped around you and say, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, I'm so glad you're back. Come and be my son. Come into my home. And that's, that's certainly a message that's given here. Again, it's touching when you think about the context in which Jesus is giving this, that maybe for the first time, these people who are gathered around Jesus, having been told that they were without hope, for the first time they hear this, this rabbi, someone speaking with authority, say, you have great worth in God's eyes. God loves you so much. And when you come back, there's huge celebration in heaven. All of heaven celebrates when someone comes back. How's that for an invitation, huh? How's that? As Jesus talks to these people and, and says, listen, you've been told you're without hope, but you have great hope. That God is standing there, willing, ready to take you back. All you've got to do is give the word. All you've got to do is take that step. I've got to think that felt pretty good. But here's a question I want to ask for what we're talking about today. And that is, as we, as we think in terms of, uh, of, of this story of, of the lost son, how do we, we're representatives of God here on this earth. We're, the church is the body of Jesus, we're told. We're representatives of Him. Look at it from this perspective with me. 
in terms, especially in terms of what we're talking about today, of how to, how to reconnect folks who have, who have been this, this lost son or this lost daughter. They've lost their way at some point in time. Uh, prison has been a part of their consequence, and now they're ready to come back. How do we be this father to them? How do we be this father? How do we go to them while they're still a long way off? How do we show that the church, that the family is a place that will welcome them despite what they've done, despite where they've been, despite their relationship now to where they've been, that we're ready to welcome them with open arms. We're ready to bring them in to make them a part of our family. How do we communicate that? I don't know about your churches, but I know about the churches that I've worked with. And I got to say, if I was grading them, it wouldn't be a great grade in terms of sending that kind of a message out. We typically, when someone asks for help or someone wants to be a, a part of our, our church family, there's this, there's this meeting that takes place. This meeting that says, well, I don't know, this guy's been in jail or this guy's done this or that or the other. I remember there was a, a man who was a registered sex offender that came and wanted to, to uh, place membership at our congregation. And there were lots of meetings, right? Lots of discussions about what we, what we need to do with this guy. And as you can imagine, a lot of people were saying, listen, we just can't take this risk, right? It's, it's a risk. It, 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 we could have lawsuits. We could have this, that, or the other. We just can't take this risk with this, with this person being here. We can't do that. Is that this father? Is he concerned about that? Does he value the risk or does he value the son? And if we're to be this father, we're going to value the son. We're going to show him that kind of a welcome. Our model has been, you know what, let's, let's, uh, someone comes in for help. I've been to jail. I'm trying to get back on my feet. I want to get back involved with the church. You know, we'll put him up for a night in a hotel and give him a hundred bucks and say, watch him, see what happens. Right? See, if he, see if he does any good. Is that this father? Is that what he did? Is that how we welcome sinners into our midst? And I got to tell you, welcoming sinner, the, the model of welcoming sinners into our church is standing at the door and shaking their hand as they come in. Happy to see you, brother so-and-so. Or look, who, look, who, look who's back, right? Uh, that's how we welcome people back into our fellowship. That's the image we get of that. That's not the image that's given here. The image that's given here is not of staying at the church building and welcoming them in, but going while they are still off. Hugging them while they still smell like pigs. Right? Being there for them, engaging in their lives. And then at some point, they'll follow you to church. That's what, that's what being this father is all about. Engaging in their lives. Investing in them. Showing them that you care, not that you want them to go to church with you, although we do, but not just that you want them to go to church with you, but that you're interested in who they are, in what they are, and in who they are becoming. You know, when it comes to this idea of welcoming folks back from, from, from prison, those who have been engaged in ministry or not, those who have come to church or not, we've got a, a at the church that I'm at now, we've got a situation where a, a man molested a young girl and he's spending a lot of time in prison. And my great fear is, what happens if he tries to come back here after he gets out of, out of prison? 
in my opinion, he's a great candidate for, for rehabilitation. He's someone I believe who will respond to that kind of thing and who will stay with the program. He wants to be right again. He wants to be right with God. He's read through his Bible just in the few months that he's been in prison already several times and writes me letters talking about his relationship with God and how it's grown in prison. He's a great candidate to come back. But what do you think is going to happen when he comes back and says, Hey, guys, I'm back. I want to be involved again. Is it going to be the father or is he going to find the brother? Because i got to tell you, nobody wants to come home to the brother. Right? Well, looky here who's back. Looky, what do you think you're doing? Nobody wants to come home to the brother. And I can't blame him. I can't blame him. We need to be the father. We need to be someone who thinks through this concept, or people, whether it be a church family or a biological family, who thinks through this concept of how can we welcome while they're still off, afar off? How can we show them the kind of reception that this father showed this son? There's no guarantee that he was ever going to be better. There was no guarantee that he's, ever going to, that he's never going to turn back to the behaviors that took him down this road in the first place. There's no guarantee that he's ever going to become the productive citizen that every father hopes his son will. But that day, this father was willing to take the chance. This father was willing to welcome him, to bring him in and to say, you, regardless of what you've done, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you've been, you're my son. You're valuable. You're important. And that's something. So what do we do? How much time do I got here? What do we do when it comes to bringing folks back and helping them to reconnect with family? I think this welcoming part, I think what the story of the prodigal son tells us about this welcoming part is huge. I think those, those first few days are essential when it comes to, to bringing people back and to showing them how loved and how cared for and how valuable they are in our eyes. I think it's crucial. I think the, the concept of, of recidivism may just take place within those, the, the decisions along those lines may take place within those first few moments after they're released in terms of where am I going to go. And when we've got a father, when we've got a church, when we've got a family who's willing to, to show them this kind of a welcome while they're still off, that has to have an impact. That has to show them the warmth and the love that they can have when they reconnect with family. My wife worked with a woman who's uh, had a son uh, died of, an, of a drug overdose. Um, and he had been in a 30-day rehabilitation facility just before that. They'd gone to, to uh, pick him up, brought him home, uh, and he hadn't been home for more than a, a, a week or so before he was, he was dead. And they pulled his, when they pulled his phone records, they found that he had to have made the first contact with his drug supplier on the way home from rehab. <laughs> on the way home. All right. Those first few moments are critical. And I'm not, I'm not saying that some won't do that anyway. I know, they, I know they will. I'm aware of that. But I'm saying we can do what we can do. And one of the things that we can do is to be this father, to accept as he accepted Jesus doesn't tell us what happened beyond the homecoming. We know that the homecoming was a rich celebration, that, that he had a, 
a robe put on his, on his shoulders. He had feet that, his, his feet were, were given shoes that he hadn't had in some time. He, he was given a ring, and some of the commentaries thought that this ring probably was a ring that was like a signet ring. They gave him actually authority to sign his father's name to documents and, and, and that kind of a thing. Showed him that he was valuable and important. The first thing the father did was give him something to lose. People who don't have hope have nothing to lose a lot of times. And if there's something we can do immediately to give them something to lose, that's important. The love of family, trust, a, a role, something that they can do immediately gives them something to lose. And when they have something to lose, they want to hold on to it. And that's really, really, really important. And it's important that we balance their, their homecoming beyond the homecoming. We balance that relationship with valuing and boundaries. It's important. And we, we're going to assume that, that the, these families, these church families, that we can put them in a position where they want the person to come back. We know that's not always the case, right? Sometimes they just don't want it. Sometimes they've dealt with it enough and they're not going to deal with it anymore. And we've got to move from there. That's both church families and biological families. Depending on what the person has done or where their life has been, maybe it's not even appropriate for them to go back. Certainly my, my friend who molested children, it's not going to be appropriate for him to go back and stay in a place where there's kids. Just not going to happen, right? And, and, that's, and, and, and obviously as he comes back to a church, it's not going to be appropriate to put him in charge of a kid's class, right? That's, that's, sometimes you just you can't do those kinds of things because of where they've, where they've been. But you can give them responsibility. You can give them a task. You can give them a mission. You can give them a ministry. Some of our best jail and prison ministry ministers are people who what? Have been in jail. Yeah. They know what it's like to be in there. They can connect with those people, and they're ready to go and be missionaries to those people in jail. No doubt about it. Regardless of, of that situation, though, the, again, this idea of value with boundaries is, is one that I'd like for you to remember. The idea of giving them plenty of love and grace, of giving them something to lose, of giving them a fresh start. We realize where you've been and what's going on, but we want to give you this fresh start. And that's what the decision to trust is. Everybody understand that the idea of the decision to trust, you can have a feeling of trust, which is good, you know, right? We, we all want to have that feeling of trust. But the decision of trust says, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to show you that I trust you, even if I don't feel it. And that's an important thing, because a lot of times people have broken our trust, and we can't do that. But we can offer them a decision to trust, and we can give them something to lose. But it's also important that we give them boundaries. Every relationship should have healthy boundaries. And as we move beyond the homecoming, we want to set boundaries in place that help these individuals move in the right direction and continue in the right direction. When, I, when we work with those who are suffering from addictions and, and uh, compulsive behaviors and those kinds of things, some of the things we give them and some of the things we ask them to do are boundaries that I think are appropriate for most who are going through some of these things. We ask them to be accountable, to have someone outside of the family that they can talk to, that they can share their life with and they can be completely honest with whether they've struggled or not. I can, I can talk to them and tell them anything, and they're going to guide me through the difficulties. So someone that is accountable, and this accountability person doesn't come back to the wife or the family and tell them what they've talked about, right? This is, it's a private conversation. It's, it's confidential, but it's open, and it's complete. And they tell them, tell them what they're dealing with, what they're experiencing, what temptations they've had, where they've failed, and what they need to do. We require those who are struggling with addictions, and, and I think this is totally appropriate, to, to get counseling or do group work where it's appropriate. When whatever they might struggle with, whether it be anger, whether it be addictions, whether it be uh, dealing with compulsive behaviors, something along those lines, pornography, there are groups that meet around those things. 
people who are struggling with the same things who are willing to sit around in a room and talk about how to get away from it, how to stop struggling with those things. I don't think there's anything wrong with requiring someone to, to, be, to avail themselves to those kinds of opportunities and to be involved in groups. Some of your churches probably have Celebrate Recovery groups where they do just that. What a great uh, blessing those groups are and how helpful they are. Communicating clear boundaries is another important thing to do. Talking to, telling them this, this is what's expected of you if you're going to live here in this house or if you're going to be a part of this church. In fact, what we ended up doing with the sex offender I mentioned before that wanted to come and place membership was to do just this. To say, hey, we value your membership. We value what you bring to this church. But there's some, thing, there's some boundaries that we've got to set. Obviously, you're not going to be teaching kids classes. That's not going to happen. And there are some other things that we ask that for openness, for the, the ability to talk to him and that kind of thing. And in those boundaries, once we communicated those boundaries, he decided not to place membership at our church. He didn't want the boundaries. He didn't like those. But again, the idea is we value you. We want you. We want you to be a part. But again, we need to communicate healthy boundaries. And again, that's a healthy relationship, and it's what we want to do. And then we have to encourage for families, both biological and church families, to have consistent follow-through. If you say... If you, talk, if, you tell, if you set these boundaries, boundaries are going to come with, with uh, consequences if those boundaries aren't kept. When you set these boundaries, you've got to be willing to follow through. If, you, if a mom and dad say, son, if, you guys, if you're going to continue in, your, uh, in taking drugs or smoking marijuana or something like that, you're going to have to live somewhere else. And that happens again and again and again. And, and very often, about as often as it does as it doesn't, is that when it happens, the parent will say, Okay, well, let's give this another try. You know, we're gonna, you know, you're gonna keep living here and that kind of a thing. Well, there's, that's not consistent follow through, and clear boundaries need consistent follow through. And these, as we communicate these and we talk about what it is to to, to follow through on these, what it is to to uh, to have valuing within boundaries. We're not saying that it's we value you if these boundaries are kept. We value you regardless. We but what we want to communicate is we value you and. We want these boundaries in place. We want these to be a part of our lives. These things are going to look differently with different individuals. They're important things to have in place. I know it's a general structure. It's something that, and, and if any of you have questions afterwards about specific situations, we can talk about what that might look like. But this is a general structure that I think helps us to reconnect people to families. Uh, those who have struggled with, with uh, difficult behaviors in the past, maybe in prison or something along those lines, coming back and reconnecting to their biological and their church families. These are th some things that I think can help us to do that. But the most important thing is the thing that Jesus communicates. The thing that helps us and that, that, that allows us to show people that, that God values them. How important they are in His role and in His scheme. One last story and then I'll let you go had a man come to a church that I was working with uh, telling, me that, telling me a story about his time in prison and that he had come in contact with a prison minister in there. And he said, the first thing I wanted to do when I come out of prison was to find a church and to get baptized. And that's why he was talking to me. And I said, man, that, that's, that's excellent. I'm so glad to hear it. Uh, I was in a church that didn't keep a full baptistry, so I said, we've got a few minutes to talk while that baptistry fills up. And so we sat there as the baptistry filled up, and we were, he was sharing some things about his life, some, some of his experiences in prison, some of his discussions with this prison minister that he had obviously established a great relationship with. When a family from church came in, and they were bringing some supplies, and the baptistry was just about full, and I said, hey, once you guys hang around for just a few minutes, and, and uh, we'll celebrate this baptism together. And I remember the man... 
that the, the, uh, the, the member of the church that had come in uh, looked at me and said, you know, I'm sorry, we're, we've got some grocery shopping to do. We're going to have to go. Sounds a little big brotherish, doesn't it? And that's exactly, that's exactly how this man took it. You know, he said, wow, boy, that, was, that wasn't very welcoming. That was, it was. And I, it was extremely disappointing to me as well. Um, we baptized him and, and, uh, and helped him out. Um, and, and I wasn't surprised that I didn't see him again. But in that situation, we couldn't be the father. You know, we, we weren't the father. We failed him in that situation. And I want to be determined as best I can. And I hope as you listen to this that you'll be determined as best you can to be sure that when someone comes your way, someone from this background, someone who's had those struggles in the past, that what he meets when he sees you and when he sees your church is the Father. Thank you guys for being with me today and spending this time with me. Hope you've gotten something out of it. If you have some things you want to discuss afterwards, I'll be up here for a few minutes. Thank you. And thank you for the introduction back there too.